0: The following podcast is presented by Together Washington. Together Washington, we are seeking to build bridges across divides and tell the inspiring stories of those building the common good. If you'd like to support or get involved with Together Washington, go to togetherwashington.com. Yeah. Bishop Muggenberg with us today, the Archdiocese of Seattle. This is just a real treat to have the bishop with us in studio today. And so, Bishop, thanks so much for taking some time and being with us. So you've been here in uh, Seattle uh, about uh, four years. Pope Francis, you know, he pointed you
1: here about about four years ago. That's right. Yep. It was May 31st when I was ordained. And uh, four years ago, I'm right on the dot. Uh, It was quite an experience to get that call. I'll tell you, your whole life changes on a dime. And you just pick up and move and uh, start a whole new life in a new location. And it's been really an interesting adventure. I can say that.
0: Yeah. So what was your what was your first, I guess, reaction when you heard you're coming to Seattle?
1: Uh, well, coming from Tulsa, Oklahoma, my first reaction was what? <laughs> I mean, are you kidding me? Uh, that's like a 1500 mile, uh, as the crow flies distance. Um, but, uh, you know what? I really didn't know anyone in Seattle. So I thought, what the heck? I might as well go and give it a try.
0: Yeah. And I, I guess, so being here four years and I mean, we'll, we'll get into, you know, I can't wait to just hear your, you know, thoughts and reflections. And it's been an interesting, you've been here during a really interesting time. I mean, let's just let's just put it that way. I mean, I'm born and raised here, and I'm looking back on the last few years, and it's like it has been an interesting
1: time in this region. Well, especially last summer. You know, I live just five blocks from Chaz or Chop, and um, watching all of that take place and unfold last summer was uh, really something that I've I've never experienced before in my life. Yeah. Wow. Let's go
0: back a little bit though, and I, I want I would love the listeners just to hear. Just your your journey and how you got to be here. You're you're the you know bishop bishop of the archdiocese, and let's kind of go back in time a little bit. I and mean, that's one of the things I love doing on the show is just hearing those kind of personal reflections of how. Because I one of the things that I believe and and I think we all know is true is that you know it's it's people and experiences right that bring us to you know the places that we we arrive at. So I mean, going back to you know, your story and how you got to be here as bishop. I mean, let's let's go back in time. And what, what are some of those, I guess, initial memories and experiences for you that really shaped
1: you? Well, that's a good question. Um, so my dad was a farmer and rancher in western Oklahoma, and I grew up a lot of my childhood years you know, outdoors and with a great love of nature. Uh, now, that in, inspired me to want to um, study the natural sciences, so I ended up uh, getting my degree in geology um, with a minor in computer science. Uh, but while I was thinking about doing that, I also began to be more and more um, interested in, uh, in basically serving Jesus um, and maybe being a priest. But I was really hesitant to do that and kind of close that out of my mind um, very intentionally. Um, but it was um, an experience I had my freshman year of college. And uh, my aunt and uncle were celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. So they asked me if I would come serve the mass. Well, that's not a very cool thing for a college freshman to do. <laughs> you know? But um, at, my, at my dad's insistence, I agreed to do it, kicking and screaming. <laughs> and, um, you know, something happened during that mass. It did. Uh, there was um, there was a priest who I'd never met who was celebrating that mass, and he had a presence about him that was profound. It was spiritual and it was tangible. I mean, I've never uh, experienced that prior to that moment in any person. And I kept asking myself, why does this person have such a really intense presence of the Holy Spirit? And uh, it was in the course of serving that mass and really reflecting on that question. That I decided that I would be open to the idea of being a priest. And um, so I look back with a lot of gratitude. That was in March of 1981. And just what college, by the way? uh, Oklahoma State University. The uh, Cowboys. The the Cowboys, that's right. Yeah, I'm a Cowboy fan. So four months after um, I celebrated uh, Mass for that priest, actually, it was 40 years ago today, Uh, he was martyred in Guatemala. Oh, my goodness. And uh, I learned later that he was a missionary priest who had come home because his name had appeared on a death list and he came home for safety. But all the time that he was home, he was prayerfully discerning whether he should go back again and face the danger to be with his people. And so he made a great statement in that period of discernment while he was in the United States. He said the shepherd cannot run at the first sign of danger. And so he returned to Guatemala and on July 28th, 1981, he was martyred. Oh, my goodness. And that was a pivotal moment in my life. And the reason I say that was a pivotal moment is that I had already uh, agreed to be open to the idea of priesthood just based on encountering that spiritual presence in him. But when he was martyred, that solidified within me that if I should become a priest, I want to be a priest with that kind of commitment. That kind of fearless dedication to Jesus and willingness to serve his people, even to the point of death. And so that has stood for me now for the last 40 years as a real inspiration and edification of what it means um, to lay down your life um, for your friend, especially when your friend is the Lord. Wow. Powerful, powerful. I mean, just
0: hearing you talk about that today, it's like it's almost like it happened the other day. I mean, it's just so powerful I mean, so from there, what was the, what were some of those next steps from, from that point?
1: well a lot of bargaining with god (laughs) (laughs) and i gotta tell you god's god's not a very good person to bargain with i mean i just i started out and i said well lord all right i'll be a priest but you know maybe when i'm 60 (laughs) which by the way i'm now in my 60th year so oh my god (laughs) i I know i guess that shouldn't have been my my starting position in the bargaining process but you know it was kind of like let me live my life let me do my thing let me do what i want get what i want out of life and then i'll give you what's what's left over and uh as a college student you know i thought that was a a pretty generous and pretty logical argument to make but um you know over the course of praying about that and finishing my uh, bachelor of science degree uh it just became more and more evident that i i really needed to answer that question and to trust and that was the hardest part was to be able to trust um, trust that god would not play a practical joke with my life trust that I could um, commit myself to the Lord's service and that his love and his grace would be enough for me. Wow. And, and to really make that act of trust. So um, when I graduated, um, I decided to explore that question, that possibility, that vocation and uh, entered seminary, um, gave it a year. And, th- and that was my agreement was I'm going to give it a year. And, and, you know, God's obligation was make it clear to me in that year, whether this is for me or not. So I gave it a year. And um, and having been open to simply trying the experience, really did reveal to me that this was something that I felt drawn to, and so I stuck with it and uh, committed, and was ordained a priest finally in 1989.
0: Mm, wow! What what seminary did you go to?
1: So uh, my first year uh, was a year of kind of propedutic background studies at a place called St Meinrad in southern Indiana, and then I uh, spent the next five years studying at the North American College in Rome. Okay. Wow, how was that? You know, it was good. It was very Italian. That would be the way to describe it. Um,
0: (laughs) How was your Italian at that point?
1: (laughs) Well, I could order in a restaurant, but not very well. But um, by the end of the studies, you know, our classes were actually taught in Italian. So we had to learn the language well enough to be able to study in a foreign language. And I'll tell you, that experience, aside from being in the midst of a um, truly cosmopolitan Um, you know, metro center of the world um, and a place of, you know, Western civilization, really, where um, the experience of of living as um, a foreigner in another land was was really, really very formative and beneficial for me. I mean, it changes the way that I um, approach um, immigrants in our country today um, very much because of having been in that position, been in their shoes uh, for five years.
0: today. Just so thrilled to have Bishop Muggenberg of the Archdiocese of Seattle with us. And we're talking just about the experiences you had when you first, the first time you went to Italy. And I wanted to ask you, what what were some of those that stood out to you? You said it was is really transformational in the sense of how you connected with folks there and immigrants. And c- give us a couple of the insights into that. Were there any stories that stood out to you of what What was
1: transformational about it? Well, I would say, um, you know, anytime you live in a different culture, it really gives you a fresh perspective on your own culture. And it helps you see areas where your culture really, uh, you know, does excel, but also areas where maybe our own culture falls short, especially because of living in someone else's environment. Um, So it was very enlightening for me to see the United States and to see our experience through the perspective of other nations. And um, by reading their newspapers and by talking with people who were from other countries, um, it gave me a very different perspective on the US experience. So that was very important and very formative. Uh, but aside from the um, experience of Italy itself for those five years, the opportunity to experience cultures and really live in cultures in Africa and other parts of Europe um, helped broaden my own uh, understanding of what it means to be a world community. You know, So when I see things on TV, um, I don't look at them as uh, distant realities that don't affect my life. I really see us as part of a human family. Um, on the one planet together and needing to work together and being bonded by a connection uh, whether or not we want to acknowledge it, so it gave me I, th- I think a real sense of being a citizen of the world uh, rather than um, just a limited sense of one country hmm.
0: yeah <laughs> i tell you I'm, and i 'm right there with you all the way because those have been some of the most powerful moments in my life when you are uh, you know living traveling abroad. And, and you understand as, you know, as we do about, you know, the, the mosaic of, of God's humanity and the, the, the cultural backgrounds and expressions. And when, when we're just here in our, you know, world in the U S we don't really get that, understand that. Um, how long did it take you to pick up Italian? Was that, was it pretty
1: quick or did it take you a while? Good question. So I did some summer studies in a um, village of Tuscany called Siena, which is a great place to study. Oh, I've been to Siena. I love Siena. <laughs> Isn't it? Oh, uh, man. You will never have a bad meal in Siena. <laughs> that is for sure. But um, anyway, so after I did those summer studies, then it was really a matter of just um, painfully and enduring the classes and sitting down and listening day in and day out, you know. And the first day, I only caught a couple of phrases. Uh, that I really understood. But just by forcing myself to listen every single day, uh, by the end of that semester, you know what? I was picking it up pretty well and um able to take my own notes mm. um, and so anytime you're studying a particular subject it's always a much more limited vocabulary you know than the broader vocabulary you would use out in the street and you know functioning in the world um, so thankfully our studies were pretty focused on scripture and other fields of theology and so the vocabulary was somewhat limited yeah so when you're you know training
0: and you're getting educated for, for you what was did you have um, in your mind's eye you know 20, 30 years out? Or were you more like, hey, I'm just taking this a year as it comes? Or did you have any particular hopes,
1: dreams, goals? That's a great question. I am a planner. And I, <laughs> and I, I will tell you, this is the one thing in life where you just can't plan it. You just can't plan it. And so um, I would always kind of be like, okay, God, you got to show me 10 steps down, the, down this path before I'm going to take the first step. And the Lord just kind of got me to be very comfortable with the fact that I needed to trust him. And he was going to show me one step at a time and just take that step. And then I'll, I'll, I'll recognize the next step from then on. So I kind of had to let go of that sense of planning and plotting my own course and uh, really be open to whatever might unfold as part of God's um, holy and perfect providence mm-hmm. And I'm sure
0: w- were there I'm, I'm sure you had some mentors who would say, hey, you know just when you, what you're getting into you got to realize that there there is that you got to be able to pivot probably on a dime. I mean, you probably saw that, I would imagine, as well, where you're like, OK, you know what? I'm going to have to just, you know, not be as much of a planner as I really want to be. Is that is there some truth there? Oh,
1: absolutely. You know, um, we I would often tell people that flexibility is the charism of a diocesan priest. And the reason I say that is, you know, I was ordained in 1989. And in the very quickly after my first year of ministry, um, I'm, I'm appointed to be a full time high school chaplain. Well, I have no idea how to do that, but you know what? You go in and you learn it and you just do it and you do it to the best of your ability. Um, and then, you know, I was assigned to be a university, um, campus ministry chaplain. So you go in and you learn that one. Um, then I was assigned to be a pastor of a parish. So you go in and you learn that new reality. Um, and then back in seminary formation for six years. So again, I learned a whole new reality there. It has been a series of challenges that, um, Again, by God's providence, i have not necessarily prepared for. But if you've got the right attitude going into it and you're willing to cooperate with the grace, you can do it uh, and you can learn it and, uh, and and you can be happy in it. Mm.
0: What are some of the, I guess, highlights as you look back on your time? You've had these amazing experiences. Are there a few highlights, you're like, oh, man, I I would have
1: never expected to have that experience, but it was just wonderful. There are, well, there are several that really do stand out. So I mentioned earlier the experience of serving Mass for that priest who really awakened within me an openness to being a priest. Um, I forgot to mention that uh, he was um, later beatified, and so he's on his way to sainthood. And in 2017, he became America's first native-born um uh, martyr, hmm. the first one from the United wow. States. So his name is Blessed Stanley Rother. Now, hmm. that I count as one of my greatest blessings. And again, I went into that kicking and screaming, <laughs> um, but nonetheless, God knew what He was doing and uh, and was able to accomplish it. Um, another tremendous blessing during my first year of priesthood. Um, I returned to actually finish um, some extended studies in biblical theology, and um, I had the opportunity to be a chaplain uh, for the Missionaries of Charity in Rome, and uh, that's uh, the group that uh, Mother Teresa founded. Now, I really loved working with those sisters during my years as a Mm. seminarian, and um, so one of the blessings of being a chaplain for them is that on three occasions during Mm. that first year of being a priest, um, I was able to celebrate Mass for Mother Teresa. Wow, and on one occasion, we actually had breakfast together afterwards. Mm. and oh my goodness! Spent thirty minutes with her, and uh, she was leaving that day to start her first house in Moscow, and was asking for our prayers. And uh, being in the presence of a living saint like that really did leave a lasting impression on me. Mm. Um, holiness, holiness is something that you can recognize. You mm. really can, yeah. And uh, and that was an undeniable uh, part of that conversation that day,
0: yeah other what year was that by
1: the way that was 1990 that was 90 1990 yeah i can't believe i'm talking now of stuff 30 years ago (laughs) yeah (laughs) was there anything in that conversation that you're able to share or could share that stood out in that time you know um again she was filled with great joy and uh really her face just exuded um a tremendous peace and love um But um, it wasn't so much what she was telling us about in that conversation. You know, she was really just describing the work that they were going to do and asking for our prayers. But after that conversation, um, something very powerful happened. As we were getting up to leave, she became very serious and uh, a very serious meaning that she had a a real intensity, a a real solemnity to her face. And um, she then took my hands and um, quietly raised them and kissed them. And she simply said, brother, thank you for bringing us Jesus. And that was it. Hmm. That was it. Wow. And that that has left a lasting impression. I bet. um, Of of the privilege it is. And I really do mean this, the privilege to bring Christ to others in whatever way we do that.
0: Yeah, I bet. So you you went back to Rome. I did. Um, you, you studied there,
1: and then you came back. What years were those that you went back? So I went back from 2005 to 2011, okay. and I served as the uh, vice rector for administration of the North American College. That's basically the chief operational officer. Okay. Yeah. And so what was that like to
0: go? You had your, you were there initially, and then you came back. I, any, any, Any differences, or what was that like to go back the second time? It
1: was very different, you yeah. know um and and a lot had changed, a lot had changed in the city, believe it or not um, and um and and obviously a lot had changed in terms of the community that I remembered there and so uh, when I went back in two thousand and five um, I was uh you know not really sure what I was going to think of that experience or how that was going to work um But, again, it turned out to be a very blessed experience. Now, the one thing I'll tell you is that um, part of my responsibility was to be in charge of our employees. And um, we had a a staff of about 80 Italian employees. And I always told people that they should never put a German-American in charge of Italians. (laughs) That was not a good recipe for uh, low-stress days.
0: My mom's 100% German. Um, And so I totally get what you're saying. (laughs) So I guess I'm half, I'm half German. uh, But I, I think you got to be a hundred percent to really be like really German, right? (laughs) So yeah, that, that, uh, that's kind of the mix of like, you know, the, yeah, let's just kind of hang out and have a conversation, you know, of course, as I know, in my family, Germans are like, I mean you're get it it done get it it done done. that's right if you're if you're
1: on time you're late right (laughs) that's right and everything that i was dealing with always had an attitude of domani domani
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh my goodness what an experience i'm sure We're privileged today to have Bishop Muggenberg of the Archdiocese of Seattle with us. And we've been having just a great time hearing his story, his background, how he got to be here, and just some really fascinating stories. So thanks for thanks for sharing that with our listeners. And and maybe let's just kind of step back as the tell us, you know, talk to us about the archdiocese and what that, you know, encompasses and you know what the you know, your role and what you've been doing, The you know, the last four
1: years you've been in Seattle. I think it's pretty, pretty exciting what you've been doing. Sure, Tim, be happy to do that. So as we mentioned previously, I came here four years ago and um, my uh, real role as an auxiliary bishop is to help uh, the archbishop in administering uh, the um, needs of the archdiocese and that can involve a lot of different things, but it's a pretty big area. So we extend all the way from the Canadian border to the Oregon border and from the Divide of the Cascades all the way out to the Pacific Ocean. Now, that includes about 170 different parishes, over 70 schools, um, and additional ministries beyond that. So um, a lot of my um, involvement has been actually driving around um, and visiting each of those areas, meeting the communities, uh, praying with them. And um, I bet that I have probably visited around 140 of those 170 locations. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so that's a, that's a <laughs> lot of visits. That and is a weird. lot of visits. But, it, you know, you, when, you, when you meet communities and you meet the people, gosh, you get a great sense of um, what their life is like, and whether it's in um, the center of downtown Seattle or whether it's in a very remote community like Forks, where I'll be going to next. Oh, you're yeah. going to Forks? Yeah, I am going to Forks.
0: Are you going to do the... Um the um that tour what's that oh Oh, man
1: i'm twilight twilight yes you can do the twilight tour you know i'm not sure the town is too excited about twilight (laughs) oh yeah they're probably like oh man we're bringing all these people here (laughs) yeah but um but anyway uh i don't know if i have time for the twilight tour but if i do i'll look it up when i get okay
0: (laughs) wow going out to so 140 visits I mean, that is that's a tremendous amount of visits as you go and visit folks
1: here in western Washington. What great people. I mean, I really have to say that Um, western Washington has um, all kinds of people, as I'm sure you all know. Anyone who lives here knows that, but um, really solid people. And I've just been so impressed by uh, their tenacity, their dedication, their creativity, uh, their welcome, uh, their hospitality, their openness. Um, it's been a great experience. really yeah. has. So you came from Oklahoma mm-hmm. to
0: here. I mean, maybe parse out what are a few of the, I guess, compare and contrast, right? What it was like to be in Oklahoma to being here in Seattle. I mean, just from a kind of high level, you know, what obviously, you know, the, he came from a little more of the southwest heartland to pacific northwest you know a little more maybe i don't know independent spirit perhaps i'm not sure but i'd be curious just as you compare and contrast the your experience there to
1: to here that's a great question so coming from the, what we call the bio, the buckle of the Bible belt <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that's actually what they call it so Oklahoma you know is a very uh, predominantly religious environment um, and uh, this obviously is a less churched environment uh, there is a much stronger strain of individualism and independence as you pointed out um, in the Pacific Northwest I think a lot of that is because of its historical you know origins and people who came up here as pioneers and have continued Continued to live a lot of that pioneering spirit and I think that we do see um, some incredible creative fruits of that spirit in the many um, you know industries and businesses and tech initiatives that have been born in Seattle um, and we also see it certainly in the strong and diverse uh, pool of opinions that are here as well.
0: Yeah absolutely you know it's we have you know independent you know music of course indie music but we love our independent grocery stores in our independent bookshops in our independent, you know, the list goes on and on. Right. Um, Although independents don't do too well here politically, but um, that is, (laughs) you know, it, as I look back and I see, you know, for a number of years, you know, Seattle has always been, or at least, you know, greater Seattle. There's always been a, kind of a refrain when you look at the census that comes out, right? You have, you have you typically, and you mentioned that we're usually tracking towards one of the least churched, you know, cities in the United States. It's usually us Portland. And then maybe in the Northeast is usually kind of near the top of least churched. And then you have the something that you had the, what they called the nun zone. And I don't know if you've, if you ever heard of this, right? That this was for a number of years called the nun zone, where more people than anywhere else indicated none as their religion. And now you have what's becoming, and I've heard a lot of people talk about this, the duns right now we're the, dun, we've moved from the nun zone to the Dun zone where people are becoming more, they're becoming done with religion. And it's just fascinating to see this play out. You know, I, as you know, I've been here, um, born and raised here and have been um, been I've served as a, as a pastor and a chaplain and been a civic leader and community leader. But, you know, and I've seen these trends come and go. And it's I'd be curious, as you've come, what have you what have you seen around this kind of nun zone, done zone and, and this kind of concept that we're this least
1: church city? So I would say there's two things that are factors driving that. Um, One is, I would say, a disconnect. And the second is a disillusionment. I think the disconnect um, is happening because um, a lot of people, as you mentioned, you know, especially upcoming young adult generations, are are not very attracted by the concept of membership. You know, maybe in the 1950s, membership was an important thing that people sought. um, But today, it's not part of people's identity to just want to be a member of something. Uh, the disillusionment also is when people, I think, find themselves thinking of the church primarily as an institution or an organization. And, of course, you know, when we see tragic examples of uh, the, the, the the human elements of the church, people can become very disillusioned by that. I think that um, the, uh, the disconnect is overcome primarily when the church accomplishes its mission, which is to bring people into contact with Jesus. And and if if you don't have that contact with Jesus, then the institution doesn't make sense, you know. And um, I, I think that uh, there are very few things that can overcome um, that experience of none or done than really an authentic introduction to the person of Jesus. So I think that we have to recover that because I don't think we're going to face a society in the future that's going to be interested in an institutional. Uh, invitation or institutional membership. They want to meet someone who has the capability of changing their lives. And that's, that's always going to be Jesus.
0: Hmm. Well, well said, we should take that. And, uh, we, we like to take little clips from the show and, and, and put them out there. That was, that was a good one. Um, you know, it's interesting because I think you're, you're, I mean, you, you're just, you're to something, right? I mean, you're, you're, I'm just agreeing and nodding in agreement here because I think it was what I've seen is that we want to, especially with young people and, and this goes probably back, you know, many years I think, but where we to, a lot of times trying to draw them first to the institution or church, right? Like we're as if we're, you know, we're trying to build our, Build our thing, right? We're building our our brand, so to speak, right? We're, you know, you go back to in the scriptures and and you look at Babel, right? And you know, try to build a monument to God in in the sky, right? And and I think you look around America and and, and in Seattle too, right? I mean, Seattle has a has a history on the you know evangelical churches of you know building these trying to build these towers, right. And try to bring people in um, so that you can, you know, oh yeah, we're look, look what we're doing. Um, But it, but you're missing what you're talking about. Like the main thing is
1: to bring people to Jesus. Is that, is that what I hear you saying? Yes. Now, there are always things that are going to be attracting people, you know, and, and we even saw that in the life of Jesus. You know, people came to him with a lot of different needs. Some of them, most of them weren't looking for a relationship of faith. I mean, they had needs for healing, they had needs for whatever social integration um, and and healing of alienation on all those levels. So people came to Jesus for a lot of different reasons, a lot of different interests, um, a lot of things attracted them to him. But he always used those attractions to give them the greatest gift of all, to lead them to a relationship. And so I think that it's fine to have attractions, you know, that welcome people to our communities and that draw people to our communities. But we should never stop short of actually leading them to that introduction with the encounter with Christ. Mm. If we do, we've failed in our mission.
0: Here in the studio, we've got Bishop Muggenberg of the Archdiocese of Seattle having a very inspiring, hopeful conversation. We heard about his background, how he got to Seattle and we're this last uh few minutes, Bishop, we were talking about some of the you know the nun zone the dun zone and and one of the things I've seen though as well is because this is not. Uh, You know, this, as you mentioned, this is not the, the Bible Belt, right, where in Oklahoma or other parts of the southeast. But what I've seen folks here, here in our region, they're they're serious about their, you know, they're serious about their faith. Right. It's not it's not cultural here. Right. We're in the sense of like, well, I better, you know, go to church because, you know, mom and dad and my family and it's just kind of the thing to do. Here, I think you see more of, you know, I go because it's, you know, and I'm involved because I, I, I you know, I, I want to be in a relationship
1: with Jesus. I want to be connected to the church. I mean, are, are you seeing that? Absolutely. You know, I really see that there, there's a hunger, I believe, in every person for that profound connection with god um and some people are you know able to connect and feed that hunger uh by their participation in the faith life hopefully that's true for everyone but some people find it more easily than others um and uh in this area of seattle i've I've met so many great committed people of faith but you're absolutely right it doesn't happen by accident here um there's there's no more cultural uh practice of it
0: yeah i i've got a a fun question for you okay you ready all right if you had a if you had to just give one homily that would just one more what would it be? you mean here in Seattle, yeah, or just here in Seattle or just in general, right let's just say you have you know you have one more to give and if you had to pick one, what is the what what
1: would it be? I think the one homily that I would most want to give is a homily that Open people's eyes to recognize the presence of God um, in their life. That's it. Mm. And I think if people will recognize that, they'll know that they're not alone. They'll know that they're loved. They'll know that God's mercy is greater than any weakness or sin that they're experiencing. And they'll have hope. And hopefully they'll respond to that presence. Yeah. Does that... Did you
0: say that... Did any of this past year and a half have any impact on that? Because obviously here we're seeing that with COVID, I mean, there's, there's a lot of fear out there, right? I mean, we're seeing a lot of fear. Um, and of course, you know, the, the having more, having death prominently in front of us, right. I mean, can, can bring that to us. Um, but yet there has been in, I don't know if, Maybe more so here in other regions. I don't know. It feels like there's more. I, I feel like I know a lot of people here that are really scared and, and living fearfully. And I feel like what you just mentioned is is the antidote to that. Did Did that
1: have any bearing on how you answered that? Well, there's a good reason why Jesus's most um, frequent quote is be not afraid, Mm. (laughs) because fear will paralyze us. Um, It paralyzes us from living normally, as we've seen in the past year, um, and it will certainly paralyze us uh, from being willing to um, embrace challenges or make sacrifices of faith. So fear, fear can paralyze us. Uh, That's the bottom line. Um, the, this past year has been an interesting experience. You know, I've seen people respond out of, um, sacrificial concern for others, but I've also seen people respond, as you say, just out of a real, um, strong fear that it sometimes becomes unfounded. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's
0: there, there's what's the scripture and I should know this Bishop. So I'm, I'm putting myself on the spot here. Oh my goodness perfect love casts out out fear
1: that's right perfect love casts out all fear from the letter of john
0: see see i knew we i knew we had the bishop in here for the right he's (laughs) so bishop you've got some some pretty big news i mean and i I'll, i'll be honest i'm a little disappointed and i maybe i shouldn't say this on air um you know because you know this is I, I shouldn't express my disappointment for this, you know, God's calling. Right. <laughs> but we had a great lunch a few months ago and we were talking about just connecting here in the city and and building bridges and, you know, really trying to bring people together that had a love for God. And and so you've got you got a big announcement here. I mean, obviously, it's already been made, but maybe tell folks what's what's next here.
1: Sure, Tim. So last Tuesday, uh, Pope Francis appointed me as the Bishop of Reno, Nevada. And so um, I'm now in the process of transitioning out of Seattle and uh, beginning uh, the process of uh, kind of onboarding with Reno. And I will be formally installed as the Bishop of Reno on September
0: 24th. Wow. Congratulations. Well, thank you. That's great. My my sister-in-law and my brother-in-law live in Reno, so... I'm gonna make sure that uh, they come say hello and visit That'd you. That'd be
1: awesome. I'd love to meet them.
0: That would be great. So, I mean, how did how do you feel? I mean, this was you. You got a was it a phone call that you received, or was it an email, or what was it? or can (laughs) or should we just move on from that
1: no that's fine so the pope doesn't actually call people himself with these news what he does is um he has uh his ambassador to a particular country make that phone call so um i happen to be uh you know visiting some friends um and uh, my cell phone goes off, and I look at the screen, it says Apostolic Nuncio. And I thought, well, there's only a few reasons this guy's calling me. <laughs> <laughs> so I stepped out of the room into a private area where I could visit confidentially and took the call. And that's when he, uh, he said, uh, you know, the Holy Father has now appointed you Bishop of Reno. Wow. And um, literally, once again, everything changes on a dime with that call. Right. Yeah. Wow. But but I do want to say that being in Seattle these last 4 years has been just a tremendous opportunity for me to learn how to be a bishop. And how to respond to the the breadth of challenges that are facing all of us today, our families, um, certainly our churches, wherever we are you know in this world, I think we 're all facing a lot of the same challenges, and a lot of those are very prominent here in the Pacific Northwest. So for me, this has been a tremendous uh, proving ground um, and training ground yeah. and I feel like um, this is the right thing at the right time, and uh, so i 'm very happy uh, to be making this transition. But you know what? I also want to go back to our conversation. Like you said, you know what? There's some things that need to happen here in Seattle, especially to help people grow in their faith. And part of that is we really need to build bridges and um, and work together um, so that we can, you know, um, break the isolation, break the individualism, and we can bring a greater spirit of cooperation to all God's people. Mm, Well said. I mean, what would be, I I
0: guess, some as you move on from Seattle here in the next month or so, what would be a, a couple recommendations you would you would give to us as you say, hey, let's let's move forward out of isolation into building bridges? What would what would be a couple of recommendations that you would give?
1: You know, one of the first things I would say is take initiative, take initiative to um, care for others, greet others. Um, go outside of your world, your comfort level, and simply to um, be kind to others. Um, now, sometimes, and that sounds obvious, by the way, but sometimes I, I really experience people almost um, afraid to interact on the street with people that they don't know or in their own neighborhood. Um, I think that we need to build a better spirit of community. That would be one thing. Um, and, um, and part of that is going to be uh, communicating with people around us on a daily basis. Um, secondly I think give people the benefit of the doubt Um, and that's important because um, it's all too easy to jump to negative conclusions on things, and I see that really governing a lot of our political discourse today, and even our civil discourse, and unfortunately, I think sometimes it makes its way into our faith discourse as well. So give people the benefit of the doubt. You know, mm-hmm. realize that people are well intentioned, and that and that we're all trying to cooperate um, in in our own authentic way to the movement of the Holy Spirit, and put our put a trust in that. You know, Um, so that would be the second thing. I I think the other thing that I would say the the third thing is. um, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to be bold. I mean, really, don't be afraid to be bold. Um, I think God wants to do some great things in Seattle. And the hunger that I have seen and heard in people um in this area you know really confirms to me that God does want to do great things here. He just needs willing disciples who are going to be His voice and be his presence and and uh, be the vehicles of of his work in the midst of this local local community. so be bold,
0: mm, powerful love that we're talking to Bishop Muggenberg, Archdiocese of Seattle, soon to be Reno, Nevada. Yeah, I'm I'm leaving a few raincoats here and picking up some <laughs> sunscreen for Reno. Very true. And you're really leaving at the perfect time, right? Right at the end of summer. Yes. Right? Like, <laughs> you get you get the you get the best two months here out of the year, and then as soon as it starts to cool down a little bit and get rainy, off to Reno.
1: I am very happy with this schedule.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, Reno, interestingly, I'm trying you know, obviously. The name is is it the littlest biggest city? Is that Reno?
1: Biggest little city. That's it. Okay,
0: yeah. <laughs> biggest little city. And it's interesting because Seattle has some of that same or at least it has historically, right? We've been a small city but has wanted to kind of we we've viewed ourselves, right, as a, a bigger city, right? We want to stay small This has historically been now we're much bigger than we were. Right. But like we've had this thing where we've wanted to stay small, but out punch, you know, our classification. Right. We've we and maybe
1: Reno has does Reno have some similarities of that? Well, that's a great question. Uh, In my extensive experience of 36 hours there, I'm I'm not sure that I uh, got to know the city well enough to be able to answer that question. Um, But uh, I I certainly was impressed uh, by the parts of the city that I did see. Uh, There is beautiful civic life. And, of course, you're only 40 minutes from Lake Tahoe. Um, and, um, I, I find the desert stunningly beautiful, by the way, I, I really do. So I love the American West and having grown up in a rural environment and grown up really outdoors, I'm, I'm so looking forward to exploring this area. You know, I'm, I'm a big mountain biker okay. and Oh, these trails, these trails are calling my name. Oh, wow. Did you have any trails around here that were kind of like, Oh man, this was the one I really loved. Good question. So I've tried to ride a lot of trails in western Washington, from Bellingham to Mount St. Helens, even the Olympic Peninsula. But you know what? The one I go back to more than any is the Grand Ridge Trail over in Issaquah. Yeah, it goes between Issaquah and the Doothy Bike Park. It's a single track. Um, It's a great trail. got about 2,500 feet of elevation gain, and it's about an 18.5 mile out and back.
0: Wow. I've literally never done that before in my life. Oh, you would love it. I mean, is it, should I, I, I've done, I mean, I've done like mountain biking, but like class one, right. Where it's just very just even terrain and, and I enjoy it, but I've just, I don't know. There's just been something that's not letting me
1: gone to the next level. Yeah. Well, you, I think if one, you got to have a teacher uh, because when you're doing something that's technical or something that you need to develop new skills for someone has to show you how to do that. And so you need someone who can kind of be a mentor and help, um, you know, show you the ropes on how to navigate these new trails or um, navigate the obstacles or whatever it is. Um and if you don't have that, it's not going to be a self-taught experience. Uh, that's how you get hurt. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely.
0: Any Anything you'll miss here in Seattle? I mean, what, are the, what are the things you're like, ah, man, I mean, were you, obviously, you did some great mountain biking, but were there things that... That stuck out to you here in the Seattle region, going to the the lakes or the mountains or anything that was kind of became
1: special to you? Well, there are a couple things. I mean, obviously, um, I would really be remiss if I didn't say it is it's some of the incredible people I've come to know and to meet here. And um, and I will always look back and, and have strong friendships that I will keep from my time in Seattle. So I've just been incredibly blessed with that. Beyond uh, the people uh, that I've had a chance to work with and meet, you know what? This is the most beautiful area that I've ever lived in so far. Um, and I, I hedge that because I'm now moving to the American Desert. Uh, <laughs> but so far, it is stunningly beautiful here. Um, being in this glaciated landscape you know with Puget Sound and the and the Olympics on one side the Cascades on the other Mount Rainier you know so prominently and majestically there on a clear day Um, it it really is is an environment that in my last four years I've never grown tired of it I've always been impressed by it and it just makes me marvel at how incredibly beautiful this area is
0: Mm. wow well said I mean it's a You get out there on the water, and you see mountains on all sides of you. I mean, there's just, there's almost nothing like it. Did you ever make it up to the San Juans at all?
1: Did you get I, to the San Juans? I did. Um, I spent Thanksgiving um, my first year here on Shaw Island and had a good chance to visit Friday Harbor as well. Yeah, that's a great,
0: great place. How yeah. about sports? Did you get into the sports scene at all?
1: Go to any games or? so i've been to a couple seahawks games um i never made it to a mariner game and uh, unfortunately the kraken started too late for me to make it to one of their games so yeah. <laughs> i'll have to watch those on tv instead are you a hockey guy do you like hockey you know i'm not i'm not really i didn't grow up around yeah. hockey and it, it was not a big sport in oklahoma
0: yeah i, can't, I it wasn't a big sport here i mean i'm at least in my mind, I mean, I don't, I didn't really know anyone that did hockey much, but I've, I've been shocked. I guess I was living under a rock because getting the 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 response to the Kraken has been unbelievable, huge, I mean, huge. I mean, I just, I was very surprised to see such the response to hockey. I, I just, I guess, I didn't expect it. But
1: yeah, well, I'll still follow the baseball and the football, um, but uh, I don't know enough about hockey to really be, get into it yeah how will your
0: role what will that look like as you move into reno i mean how, how will you begin to you know process and prepare and and um what, what does that look like for you
1: well that's a great question so um one um i, I want to make this move uh being as cooperative as i can uh with god's grace that that's my first and primary concern because beyond what i want to do there um i My fundamental desire is to be the bishop that the people of Reno need me to be. And so I want to do that. Um, So I'm trying to find lots of ways to cooperate with God's grace right now and to be open to that and to keep Jesus in the center and not myself. Mm. And so I'm trying to go through this move uh, very conscious of, um, you know, that need uh, to stay focused.
0: Yeah, well said. I I just I, I love how you continually go back to um you know really looking to jesus to center you guide you i mean that's just a. I i think in in our day and age when we become um and, and i and i say this because i know I, I do this myself you know we're we become more navel gazing you know and looking at you know what what i want to do or you know i kind of go to myself first and become, um, highly individualistic versus, okay, take the time to really, okay, God, what, what are, how are you guiding me? How are you leading
1: me? Yeah. Uh, you know, ultimately, um, I, I, I think that, uh, whatever I do, um, if it isn't something that the Lord is inspiring, um, it, it isn't going to be his work and it probably isn't going to be what the people need. Hmm. How do you want to be remembered? In Seattle. I would like to be remembered as the guy who um, was down to earth, accessible, um, encouraged, um, and um, basically just tried to um, walk with people wherever they were on that journey and to help them take the next step. Mm. I love that. That's great. Well said. Well (laughs) said.
0: We've been having a great, great time today with Bishop Muggenberg here of the Archdiocese of Seattle. And Bishop, again, thank you for being with us in studio today. I always love having folks in studio. It It is, uh, it makes such a, it's just fun and it makes such a difference. So uh, I appreciate you coming in. You know, as you, as you look at, you know, Western Washington and, and the region here and you think about, because I'm sure you've been th- thinking and praying about a lot of kind of vision, you know, for the future and plans. And I mean, what, how would you describe it? And what would you say are uh, the opportunities um, and the challenges for the church here, you know, moving forward? How, How would you, how would you present that? I guess if, you know, if you're giving a presentation (laughs) on your, on your way out. Like, Hey, here's the, here's the opportunities. Here's the challenges. Here's where I kind of see
1: things at kind of a state of the state Uh, of the church. Sure. Uh, that's a great question, Tim. You know, and there really are opportunities in the midst of the challenges. Um, I, I think one of the great opportunities that you have in Western Washington is that you have people who have a great, sincere desire um, to experience um, deeper and more abundant life. And I think they're expressing that desire in you know their search for adventure, for outdoor recreation, and all these other very good ways. But ultimately, I think it's a deeper hunger that they have. And so um, I think that um, one of the great opportunities you have is to present the message of Christianity in a new uh, new and credible way. Um, And when I say that, I, I think that a lot of people already presume that they know what Christianity is about. But I would dare say that there's a lot of people who really don't know it. And uh, they maybe boil it down to uh, more of a misunderstanding than a real experience of it. So I think that the church has a great opportunity, and this is true for all churches uh, in western Washington, a great opportunity to be authentic and, as I said before, to be bold. And actually witness, witness your faith, um, witness it to your neighbors. Um, don't be afraid, you know, to speak a message of faith and encouragement in your offices. Um, but people are going to be hungering for that and they will respond to that message. Um, when they receive it, Mm. you you talked about, there might be some
0: misunderstandings and maybe we don't really grasp concepts. Um, and, and I've, And I'm with you on that. I mean, I think I was one of those people, right? (laughs) You know, like I was one of those people earlier in my life. I don't, I don't feel like I really understood, you know, the gospel. Um, I mean, can you explain a little more, you know, or give some examples of what you mean by that? Or maybe even someone listening today who might be uh, not really sure, maybe they think I think I know what it is, but maybe I'm not totally
1: sure what it is. You know, I think that most people, when they think about uh, religion and even when they think about Christianity, uh, they perceive it as um, a lot of rules, a lot of, you know, um, judgments. um, And unfortunately, that's that's how it's misrepresented in a lot of the secular press. But um, what it's really about is an experience of God's love and mercy, you know, and that's always good news. Um, so, I think that one of the great misunderstandings is for people to move beyond that very negative um, judgmental condemnatory uh, misrepresentation of Christianity and to experience its heart and soul, which is that open, generous accepting love of god um, a love that does uh, meet us where we are and a love that it loves us enough to bring us um, beyond where we are hmm. yeah
0: i was um I gave a I don't know if I mentioned this to you I do a chaplaincy work with the mariners in in this past this past Sunday um doing chapel um what you're talking about was was really the point of the message which was if we there if we get the order wrong it's a it's a and it's a and it's a little it might seem like a little difference but it's a big difference right if we a lot of times I think we approach Um, God, like, okay, I need to um, obey and listen so that I can get God's love. You know, I need to do the right thing so that God will accept me and love me when it's actually the reverse of that, right? The reverse is actually God loves me. So therefore I want to, you know, love him and follow him. Right. And it's a, and it seems like such a, Um, little difference, but it actually is the biggest difference. And it's very easy because we, uh, we live in such a performance oriented society where everything is, you know, cause and effect, it's performance based. So I've got to perform so that I get the reward, right? I've got to do this so that I get the grade. I've got to do the, and, and so we do that. I feel like in our relationship with God too, we're like, Oh man, I've got to, do the right thing and if I don't do the right thing I'm kind of filled with
1: shame and condemnation and is that no, I I think that's right on. You know, um, people are motivated by all sorts of things, whether they're trying to earn, you know, earn God's love or whether they're trying to avoid what they perceive mistakenly as God's wrath. Um, but uh, but but ultimately, you know what, um, those things don't necessarily change our lives. They may govern our behavior for a while, but they don't change our lives. And they certainly don't win our hearts over. Um, but God's love does. Mm-hmm. And when we recognize it as a gratuitous gift. And as you say, then we respond to that and we live out of that and we live in it. That's what changes our lives. Mm. You know, that's what makes us not want to do anything that would cause us to live separated from that love.
0: What's the scripture?
1: I'm going to put you
0: on the spot again. Let's see if if you can go two for two here. God's kindness produces or brings us to repentance. And I think that was I think that was Romans. Paul and Romans and maybe. I'm kind of paraphrasing. You may have gotten me
1: with that one, okay? So, <laughs> or, or I may be familiar with a different translation. Oh yeah. Anyway, I'll let you look it up on your cell phone.
0: Well, I tell you, Bishop, this has been a lot of fun. I mean, this has been just a tremendous joy to have you here in studio. Especially, um, as I said, this is—it's a little bittersweet, right? Because um, I know we had such a great time connecting about how we can you know, Bill Bridges here in the community and, and, um, you know, I just wish you all the best, you know, as you head to head to Reno. I mean, what a,
1: what an exciting adventure, you know? It really is. I'm very excited. You know, as I said before, this has been a great place, Seattle, to be able to uh, learn how to be a bishop and in some sense to, you know, practice skills and all that. But now I I really feel ready uh, to be the bishop of of a diocese and to serve that diocese. And so just keep me in your prayers and uh, hope that I remain responsive to the movement of the Holy Spirit.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you thanks Tim. yeah. That was Bishop Muggenberg of the Archdiocese of Seattle who will be heading off to reno but just a just a f- fantastic conversation.